welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. First question, just to set the stage here for our discussion. Chris, have you seen Oppenheimer yet? I actually have not. I guess you could say sadly, but I... Okay. I do have some background about what this story is about. Okay, you work in news. You <laughs> I do know work story. in news. I've seen, I think, a lot of news stories we've done at KRQE okay. since this movie has come out about all things Oppenheimer. So I feel like I'm well-versed, but then again, the movie is uh, just something I haven't seen yet. Yeah, and we, so I'll have to put it on the list. Gotta get you on there at IMAX. Highly suggested. Have you seen Barbie? No. Okay. No. I was going to get Rebecca on no. the line if you've seen Barbie before Oppenheimer, but it's okay. All right. <laughs> Forgive it. Well, it is possible to have this discussion without having seen the movie. Technically, no spoilers here since this is a film based on a real historical event and the dynamic legacy of J. Robert Oppenheimer is a theoretical physicist that came to Los Alamos, New Mexico in 1943 to direct the top secret weapons lab of the Manhattan Project and who would later become known as the father of the atomic bomb. So the film directed by Christopher Nolan about Oppenheimer's story, it thrust this piece of history back into the national headlines and really has sparked a lot of intrigue about what happened in Los Alamos and the famous Trinity site, which is now part of the White Sands Missile Range, where the first nuclear weapons test took place. With us on the line remotely today from Los Alamos National Laboratory is Alan Carr. He's the lab's lead historian. We also have Bri Steves. She's the director of the National Security Research Center, or NSRC, and Dave Tietmeyer, the producer of NSRC's own Oppenheimer documentary, which we'll also discuss Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. You know, Oppenheimer was the first director for Los Alamos National Lab in 1943, which we mentioned. But before we get into more of the history there, can you tell us, broadly speaking, what is the current mission at Los Alamos? At the laboratory today, we have 16,000, 17,000 people who are officially affiliated with the institution. And Unlike during World War II, the laboratory is a multidisciplinary laboratory today. And so, of course, there is still the nuclear weapons mission uh, at Los Alamos. That's pretty well known. We do threat assessment, but we, uh, we also have scientists who are doing work in just about every major scientific field that you can imagine from doing things like uh, modeling the spread of pandemics. I used to mention that in talks and nobody really cared until COVID showed up and figured out how important that is developing vaccines, exploring Mars, taking on climate change. I mean, there's a lot of different types of work that goes on at the laboratory today. It's a huge place. I think we're approximately 40 square miles. So uh, it's, uh, it, it really is a remarkable place to, to be. Bri, did you want to add to that? Tying this back to Oppenheimer in our earliest days, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project under Oppenheimer's leadership spearheaded the advent of big science. And, and that's what we still do at the lab today, big science. In 1943, World War II is happening. General Leslie Groves hires J. Robert Oppenheimer to accomplish a monumental feat that is creating the atomic bomb as quickly as possible to ideally help end the war. And that's also the start of what would become Los Alamos National Lab. So Alan, if you can tell us what was Los Alamos like back then, because 
It seems like they chose a remote part of the desert in New Mexico to conduct, obviously, what was a top secret mission, correct? Uh, right. And so, uh, so I'm Alan Carr. I'm the senior historian of the laboratory. I've been there for about 20 years now. And, you know, looking back at World War II, it was uh, really a unique set of circumstances. It, this World War II was the deadliest war in human history. There were literally tens of thousands of people who were dying every single day on average uh, around the world. Oppenheimer, of course, was uh, he had imported theoretical physics from Europe to the United States. I think that's something that's portrayed in the movie to an extent. He was viewed as America's leading theoretical physicist by, by many scientists of his day. And, uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear and has been said uh, maybe by Oppenheimer himself that his two great loves were high desert country and physics. And at Los Alamos, he would get to bring the two together. And that's something that's portrayed in the film as well. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Los Alamos, even today, there's no direct flights there. It's pretty remote and uh, it's it's isolated. It's far inland. It's not too far from a railway. Uh, you know, of course, just south of Santa Fe, there's the train station at, at Laming. It, it really hit a lot of marks. Uh, you know, there would be a lot of high explosive testing going on at the laboratory during World War II. That's one of the reasons why you would not want it in the middle of a city. You would not want it on a coast where it might be susceptible to attack from the Japanese or the Germans possibly. You know, and so again, Northern New Mexico, which had already been a part of Oppenheimer's life. He owned property not far from Santa Fe. He loved New Mexico. He loved its history, its people, just everything about it. And, I, you know, when you look at how he was able to bring physics together with that, and to do something truly remarkable, that's become really an important part, I would say, of, of our state's history now. For sure. And the original mission was a complicated one. Obviously, there are moral questions surrounding the creation and use of nuclear weapons. And I think that the film did a good job showing the complexities of Oppenheimer's character as a physicist, you know, hired by the government. I haven't seen NSRC's documentary yet, but Dave, can you tell us what was your approach in documenting this part of the lab's history? Well, I guess one of the key things was not to do just another sort of linear historical piece on Oppenheimer because there's been many books and films and documentaries already done. So one of the key points that we try to get across on ours is to make that connection between Oppenheimer's mission and the mission today. So we had the opportunity to talk to uh, not only historians, but we had the opportunity to talk to theoretical physicists and the folks who are actually managing the weapons program and making that connection with Oppenheimer in the 1940s and what we're doing today. So that was really one of the key things that we wanted to, to get across to folks who may not know much about Los Alamos, who will be coming in here to visit. Tourism is going to go up, and we wanted to make sure that the lab had some type of response, some type of program that we could share with people visiting. Was there any overlap of people who knew or maybe even worked on that project who's still alive today? I know, you know... World War II veterans are, are dying off and 
they're aging out, it seems like. But did you get any of that overlap in your research and interviews? No, but we did get a chance to interview his grandson, Charles Oppenheimer, who came up to the laboratory and we were able to interview him and get his perspective and his conversations he had with his father about his grandfather. But most of the subject matter experts were historians like Alan, who, who have spent you know, their career studying this, this time period. Yeah, if I could add, um, you know, I, I think a nice component to, to what Dave provided there, the National Security Research Center is a curator of unclassified historic items. So photos, film, documents, all of these dating back to Oppenheimer's time, and in some cases, Oppenheimer himself. And so that put us in a very unique position to be able to tell this story through our collections, right? And so the photos, the footage, audio, in many cases, these these have never been released publicly before. And so we were able to, to do that through our documentary. And I just wanted to ask a general feeling of, because I know as a news person, you know, we love to find new things and tell people about them. What is that feeling like for you guys being able to expose this stuff that had never been seen before, been published before? You know, I, we, we've got a fantastic staff of librarians and archivists and digitizers. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the only historian. You know, I have colleagues there that interpret this as well. And I think that this is, you know, this is what we, we do the job for. I mean, it, you, we live for that, being able to put people in contact with the information that they need to get their jobs done uh, at the laboratory. On the other hand, our most common question, even before the movie, was people want to learn about maybe their relative who was involved in the Manhattan Project or maybe at the laboratory after the Manhattan Project. You know, we're still here. We've been around for 80 years now. And so it is, uh, it is immensely satisfying for us to be able to deliver that information. And, you know, as Dave was talking about the documentary a while ago, and uh, Brian, I think Brian added on to this, we, we've got uh, between these unique perspectives and unique documents and locations, of course, you know, there are Manhattan Project National Historic Park sites on the property. The, the objective was really to share something with the public that uh, a documentary that they couldn't get anywhere else. And, uh, and I think we achieved that. Dave's made a, a great documentary, and I think it will be complimentary to some of the other ones that already existed. Very cool. The scientific achievements in Los Alamos obviously brought the secret lab into the public eye and the world into what was called the atomic age with Oppenheimer as the face of both. For those that may be questioned still to this day, whether it was a good thing that the atomic bomb was created and put to use, can one of you maybe explain why having this be a successful mission was so important to our history? Dave, you look like you want that one. <laughs> You're going to give it to me, aren't you? I can start and, and maybe my colleagues will jump in and because they'll probably have something to add because that's a huge question. Yeah. You know, a lot of this history, I think to start with, it's important to make the case and other historians have that a lot of this is subjective. A lot of it is your point of view. You know, there's a lot of, there's an aspect of history that is just, you know, these facts that kind of happened. Uh, that's only the beginning of what we do as historians. And so, you know, it's okay to have various different opinions on this. 
For instance, when I talk about the end of World War II, I, I typically disclose I'm the grandnephew of a baton survivor. Of course, there are a lot of people in my category that live in New Mexico. There were a lot of people that were baton survivors. And, uh, you know, that I try not to color, let that color my presentation of the facts very much, but I do disclose that. On the other hand, if I were Charles Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's grandson, he might have and does, as we'll present, uh, a unique perspective on this. If you were the grandson of a survivor of Hiroshima or Nagasaki or the survivor of somebody uh, who lived under Japanese rule in, in the Pacific during World War II, th there's a lot of different perspectives to bring to this. And, and I think all should be welcome and, and, and remembered. And so I think that would start with number one. Of course, you know, Bry talked a little bit earlier about the laboratory today. I, I think that the laboratory of today, and Jim Konetka, one of Oppenheimer's biographies, uh, biographers, has made this point. The laboratory itself is part of Oppenheimer's legacy. It lives on larger, doing more things than we've ever done before. And uh, I think that that is, uh, again, it's an exciting place to be. And I think that's one thing to take into consideration. You look at the, at the Trinity test. You know, on the one hand, this is a test that represents, you know, maybe maybe the single greatest scientific experiment ever conducted. Uh, on the other hand, one needn't look further than the news to, to see that the uh, potential health consequences of that are something that are still discussed in our state and beyond today. There's the end of the war. You know, uh, people will often make the case, maybe the use of atomic weapons saved lives, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives or more. And maybe they did. There's a lot of what if history there. On the other, uh, on the other hand, of course, you know these attacks were devastating. Uh, when we look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I don't think that the war would have ended when it did without the use of nuclear weapons. You'll know that's an I think because we won't know otherwise. But at the same time, the uh, the consequence, the price of that was very high. The consequence of the war going on for even a week beyond that would have been very high considering how many people were being killed by the imperial Japanese military throughout its empire, which remained vast. You know, you look at the nuclear weapons, uh, we still have nuclear weapons with us today. Maybe remembering Hiroshima and Nagasaki is an important part of deterrence that we don't talk about that often. It's important, I think, that the world remember what nuclear weapons will do. And uh, I think maybe that's the greatest thing that will keep us from ever ever using them in combat, any nation hopefully ever using them in combat again. Yeah. As Alan said, it's subjective, of course, but I think it's very important to remember that the Manhattan Project, the work at Los Alamos, it was this moment in history when scientific genius accomplished something profound in the name of national security, right? And so I think that that's, that's an incredibly important takeaway this was a huge scientific breakthrough. This happened in Los Alamos, and this is still happening today. Great things are still accomplished at Los Alamos today. It was true during the, the Manhattan Project, and we're carrying that on now. Yeah, and I, I just like to add that, isn't it interesting that Oppenheimer's story is still alive? And this is one of the questions that people ask is, should we have used them or should we not? But I don't think Oppenheimer's story is going away anytime soon. You know, the Nolan film is great, and but there's so much more to him. And it's just interesting that his story continues. We talk about him more than probably any other historical person that's lived. So Definitely, I think more to it than just a three-hour film could fit in, obviously, right? 
And going back to the Manhattan Project and when this was taking place, this was obviously before social media and, you know, where you can get information so quickly and pass it along. But the government basically built a town out there in the desert with more than 6,000 scientists, engineers, others living and working. Families were moved to Los Alamos. Babies were being born. How was this project able to be kept such a secret, you think? Alan, do you want to take that one since you're the historian? I'll take that one on because, you know, Brian, Brian Dave will have some thoughts on this one, too, because we there's a lot of stories that are associated with that. I'll, I'll try and give a quick answer there. I think that that's one of the great achievements of the Manhattan Project is that, you know, the Manhattan Project was not just Los Alamos, of course. It was this huge national project that likely employed about half a million people at one point or another during its existence. And so in terms of people, Los Alamos was relatively small, but I would also say that we had a very, very important mission as well, which is which is more well known than any of the other project sites. To be able to keep that huge project as secret as they did was was remarkable. You know, people. Uh, I think that it starts with the fact that most people on the project did not know what the end product was going to be. The most common job on the Manhattan Project was some type of construction worker, construction worker, laborer, because as, as you mentioned. There was no town of Los Alamos. You know, there were some homesteads there. About 35 homesteading families were evicted in the area. There was a school for boys there. The school personnel, they were evicted as well. Most of the land around Los Alamos was already owned by the government, which I think is one of the things that made it very desirable. But, you know, there was no town. There were no factories. There were no laboratories. And so construction workers had to be brought in. If you were somebody who was pouring concrete or an electrician or a plumber, one of these essential jobs to get the job done, you didn't necessarily need to know that the end product of your work was going to be a nuclear weapon. And so that was number one in terms of secrecy. You were only told what the end product was if you needed to know to get your job done. And that was a very small number of people who were involved in, in the project. You know, at Los Alamos itself, there were a lot of rumors about what was going on up there. Scientists were not able to just freely, completely freely go and come back as they pleased. You know, leaving the area was uh, was something that was controlled pretty well. There was a town around the entire town of Los Alamos until 1957. Uh, <laughs> you know, so there was physical security. There was information security that was put in place. Mail was censored at the time. You know, there were uh, one of the big issues, and I'll, I'll end after sharing this story, I think, Many people have heard this story before, but, you know, because there were not that many people in Los Alamos before, all of a sudden, as you mentioned, there's thousands of people there. Generally, there were young people there. A lot of people, uh, a lot of young couples, a lot of young couples were, were made during the war at Los Alamos. And so were children. And so all of a sudden you have eight, maybe 12 children being born per month at Los Alamos in this place where children were generally not born at all. How do you keep that secret? Well, on mom's uh, or on the birth certificate, mom and dad's address was just listed as P.O. Box 1663, Santa Fe, New Mexico. That was the project's mailbox. And so the place of birth was not given at Los Alamos. Los Alamos was not even mentioned. You were not allowed to use the term Los Alamos. You know, the code name back then was Project Y, Site Y, things like that. But uh, lots and lots of layers to the security and overall pretty successful. Wow. The only thing I would probably add to that, that as I was filming, filming the documentary, was uh, a historian who talked about just the sheer, the supply chain. You know, how there was nothing on that Mesa. 
how did you get metal? How did you get instruments? How did you get, you know, what you needed and still keeping that a secret? So, Alan, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the University of New Mexico played a big part in getting instruments up to the physicists. I believe the supplies were coming to the New Mexico physics department. The Los Alamos uh, folks would come down in their trucks, pick, pick up the supplies and bring them up secretly up to the hill. And I thought that was fascinating, right, Alan? Is that correct? No, that's, that's, that's basically correct. You know, back initially, everything in Los Alamos, everyone was going to be military. You know, Oppenheimer was going to be a soldier, so was everyone else. But he wasn't able to recruit people to work on the staff. You know, nobody was interested in doing work on radar at MIT to join the Army, go through basic training and do physics at an undisclosed location in the American Southwest. So this was one of the compromises that was made. The University of California came in and administered the Laboratory One to enable Oppenheimer to recruit scientists and say, hey, instead of having to go to basic training, you can join the faculty of the University of California. And so that was much more appealing. And as Dave mentions, the other reason was that, you know, if the University of California is shipping scientific equipment or another university is shipping scientific equipment, instruments, cyclotrons, that looks a lot less suspicious working, you know, sending a shipment to the University of New Mexico than it does the Army shipping around cyclotrons, for instance. And so uh, for both security, but also for recruiting purposes, we remained and continue to remain a civilian institution. Hmm. Do you want to mention the story about the gadget, Alan? Because I thought that was kind of a funny story. Uh, yeah. So, so I think this is interesting too, Dave. So Back when the laboratory had its first major technical conference in April 1943, everything was still under construction, including the building where they had this first conference. And so as the scientists are talking, they're talking about, well, we're going to have the bomb do this and the bomb should have that bomb, bomb, bomb. Oppenheimer personally stepped in and he said, you know, I don't know if the construction workers need to know that we're working on a bomb. And according to that story, I think during one of the conferences, one of the construction workers' legs came through the ceiling because they were still <laughs> working on it in their step. And so Oppenheimer said, you know, instead of using the term bomb, why don't we just call it the gadget? And so that's where the term gadget comes from. It's a generic term to apply for the different bomb designs that they were working on for security reasons, as Dave mentioned. Huh. So just last month, the National Security Research Center, or NSRC, released its own documentary titled Oppenheimer, Science Mission Legacy, the full story of J. Robert Oppenheimer and his work on the Manhattan Project as only the Los Alamos lab can tell it. What is the main message that you hope to get out there through the telling of your side from this part of history? I'll let Bri take that. Follow me there, Dave. That's, that's a great question. So we actually, re and we did release a version earlier this month. It was a, it was a director's cut, a Dave Tietmeyer cut that we put together, especially for a visit from Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and NSA Administrator Jill Ruby. They came to the lab and so we released the cut just for them. We are polishing and finishing it up now and we'll have our final version out hopefully at the end of this week. But the whole idea was to create a historically accurate account that really only we, the lab, can tell, both as the place where it all occurred 
and then being able to claim Oppenheimer as our founding director. And as I mentioned earlier, the documentary, the, the telling of this story is supported by all of our very unique original collections, the documents, the photos, the film, the audio, many of which have never been shared publicly before. We're using all of those to tell this story, this unique story that people will only be able to get from us. Um, I think Dave talked a little bit in the, the beginning of the interview about how we really wanted to make the connection that Oppenheimer, as our first director, has to the lab's mission today. So the documentary is titled Oppenheimer Science Mission Legacy, and it's a three-part film that explores each of these themes, the connection with Oppenheimer and today's work. Dave, I'll let you take it. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think during the pre-production meetings, we all sat together and kind of talked about what we wanted to highlight and what we didn't want to dive into. But um, I think one of the things that, that I really tried to show was Oppenheimer's true love for northern New Mexico. I mean, his true love for this area. And my thought was, you know, people living in Los Alamos in this area need to know that, you know, that that this wasn't just the place that he set up a lab. He truly loved this area. And I and through some of the historians, I think I was able to get that point across. Of all the science and all the mission, it comes down to just that very simple love for the region and the people and the area. And I'll, I'll only add to those very quickly that for those of who are interested in, and are going to watch our documentary, which will be available soon, you know, it, it's not a comprehensive history of the Manhattan Project or Oppenheimer. It's just to look at this story through the, through the eyes, I guess, of the laboratory. That's one of those many perspectives that we talked a little bit about earlier. And so, for instance, you know, Dave talked about some of the people that we interviewed. You'll get to hear from, I believe, two of our former director, our current director and one of our former directors. What's it like to be, you know, one of Oppenheimer's successors, in a sense? That's something that I've not seen in any of the documentaries. And it's very much, you know, a very important part of our audience, our current laboratory workers, and maybe other people who might be interested in working at the laboratory one of these days, or at Sandia, because Sandia started out as a wartime Los Alamos division. We want them to understand, you know, kind of how we got to where we are, to see these connections going all the way back to World War II. And so, I, I again, I think that Dave and the team of filmmakers have accomplished that. And again, keeping in mind the scope of what we're trying to accomplish, I think it's a very, very nice production. We're going to take a quick break, but for the next few moments here, we're going to insert a clip of the trailer for this upcoming documentary, which is again titled Oppenheimer Science Mission and Legacy. Was he a hero? Yes, I think he deserves that title. But like all heroes, all heroes throughout history, he was a flawed hero. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. America is now at war. A state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. You had the drive of wartime urgency. The laboratory under his leadership responded to that. 
they came to a design that was pretty novel and pretty innovative. And because they weren't actually sure it was going to work, they needed to do a test. And when he's in the bunker at Trinity, he's clinging to a post, shaking, because it's all come down to this moment. It succeeded, but it cost him. Okay, so we're back with everyone. Another interesting element to Oppenheimer's story that, you know, I have to ask since we have a historian on the line with us is, you know, despite his team's successful mission, fast forward to 1954, his security clearance was revoked by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission just 32 hours before it was set to expire. The movie, you know, explored what a lot of people consider to be an unfair political and personal attack against Oppenheimer back then. Can you tell us why do you think his security clearance was revoked? It's, you know, it's a long story. The movie does spend a lot of time telling that aspect of the story. And I would say, uh, you know, at least in my opinion, you know, that final hour of the movie goes by really quickly. It's very intense as it, as it delves into this. 1954, in that time period, you're, you're at the height of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. People in this country were, were legitimately afraid of world events. You know, you go back to 1949, Joseph Stalin, one of the greatest prolific mass murderers of all time, has nuclear weapons. There are spies amongst us who are giving him our, our secrets. China becomes a communist country. The Korean War breaks out. Uh, you know, the arms race is on. It was a scary time. I mean, I think that I would be very uh, nervous if I were living that in that era, and a lot of other people were in this country as well. That's understandable. Of course, our response to it as a nation is one of the darker periods in our history. A lot of people lost their reputations and their, their careers as a result of these witch hunts that went on throughout the country for communists. I think Oppenheimer was ultimately the victim of one of these witch hunts. Now, Oppenheimer, he's, he's a hero, in a sense, to Los Alamos in particular. But he was like all of the great heroes, tragically flawed. You know, Oppenheimer was a human just like the rest of us. And he did human things just like the rest of us as well. One of those human things was uh, he was interested in communism in the 1930s. I think a lot of people would have been, you know, uh, not much was known about that ideology at that point in time. And, you know, as the United States suffered during the Great Depression, you know, if, as I put it before, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from or your child's next meal is coming from, would you consider doing things differently? And, and Oppenheimer had. Oppenheimer, I believe, was a formal member of the Communist Party. That's my opinion. That's something that's still debated. He went to communist meeting. He contributed significant portions of money to communist-friendly organizations. He was heavily involved in communist circles at, at Berkeley. Now, again, that in and of itself was something that was pretty common. A lot of other people at the Manhattan Project had those connections going back to the 30s with the Communist Party. The government, for the most part, knew about these activities and gave him a clearance anyway. In 19, uh, 1942, 1943, it was a long, drawn-out process, but he was given a clearance. He had lied to investigators to, at some points. Again, there's, there's a long story about why. You know, it's not acceptable. Maybe it's understandable as a human being why he chose to make those decisions. But again, the, uh, the, the government knew these things about Oppenheimer when he was cleared and continued to give him clearance for years after that, knowing that. 
he accumulated a critical mass of enemies. And I think that that's the basic answer to your question. You know, he, he was opposed to the development of the hydrogen bomb for a multitude of reasons. Most of them really had nothing to do with the morality of it, more technical military reasons. He was opposed to that. That didn't make everybody in Washington happy. He had insulted prominent people in the government, and some of those prominent people rose to power over time. There were people in the government who I believe legitimately thought he was a spy, which he was not. You couple all of these things together and put it in the middle of the McCarthy era, and here's a guy with a, with a communist past. And uh, the result of that is the hearing. And the security hearing was a greatly flawed process. It was essentially without precedent. Oppenheimer was ceremoniously bumped out of the government. I, I, I think that it should not have never have happened. And that's the conclusion that the current Secretary of Energy, Secretary Granholm, came to as well. It was a flawed process that should not have happened in the first place. Oppenheimer was not without flaw, but no American should be treated the way that J. Robert Oppenheimer was in 1954. And I think, you know, for those who've not seen the movie, when you do see, you know, a dramatized portrayal of that, you'll understand why. It just should not have happened. That's not the way that the government should do business. It did back then. And I'd like to think it'll never happen again. But, you know, again, people do people things. And there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I knew you would at least give a give us a little bit more knowledge or, you know, a glimpse into what was going on back then, because I know that it's complicated. Bri, you wanted to add something? I did. I think it's important to also point out that this is important today. This was decades ago, right? That this happened to Oppenheimer. And, and unfortunately, every day, everywhere, people are wrong, right? So he's, he's certainly not unique in, in that. But this is still important, even though this amount of time has gone by, because the truth is important. And truth in science is important. And having a dissenting opinion does not equate to disloyalty. And so I think that by vacating the, that decision, that 54 decision by the AEC, that's important to today's scientists that uh, the truth does matter. Yeah. And that took place for our listeners in 2022, correct? That's, that's right. And, you know, Dave got some great interviews and you'll get to see those in the documentary because this story continues to evolve. And so the documentary goes right up to now. Uh, it was December 2022 when this announcement was made. And I would like to point out that as we go back to the decision to do something about Oppenheimer's clearance, the hearing that had happened in 1954, so many years ago, there had been various efforts to do something for decades. And these efforts had different goals. Some people wanted to restore Oppenheimer's clearance. Well, he's dead. He'd been dead for a long time. You can't give him his clearance back. And the DOE and the Atomic Energy Commission before it, you don't just hand out clearances. There's a process that goes along with that. And so that's not really feasible. The other thing is, well, Oppenheimer should be exonerated. Well, he did do some things that were wrong and some things that would get a current worker at the laboratory in a little bit of trouble, maybe a lot of trouble as well. So you can't, there were people who didn't want to exonerate him for very understandable reasons. What about vacating it. And to vacate is a legal term that means to annul. Basically, it didn't happen. It should not have happened. And that's what happened in this case was that the secretary chose to annul the decision, to vacate it, say this process 
as we were talking about earlier, this was a flawed process. It should not have happened. And in addition to vacating that hearing, I think also there was a, essentially an apology that was in, in order there as well, which was offered also. So to me as a historian, I was surprised that it happened simply because it's always easier to do nothing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just just let the, the fuss die down and it'll go away. I, I think it took a lot of courage and I think that it took a, you know, because again, there were reasons that you could make not to do anything. They did anyway in Washington. I think it was the right decision. I think it was an appropriate decision. And, you know, it, it kind of brings the story to, at least Oppenheimer's story, I mean, to a somewhat satisfying conclusion. Uh, he's not around to see this, but I think that uh, I think that his family has certainly appreciated it. And as Brian alluded to, those of us who are at Los Alamos and a part of DOE today, I, I think that that's something that should be encouraging and inspiring to us as well. That's how I feel uh, about it anyway. So, Brian, a question for you, because, you know, many of the reasons why we're able to even have these conversations is because of the documentation of the things that happened in the past. And we know that the National Security Research Center today is one of the largest scientific technical libraries in the federal government with unclassified legacy materials. And according to the website, it also helps serve researchers at Los Alamos and other National Nuclear Security Administration sites. So, Brian, as the director can you tell us, broadly speaking, for the layman here, what kind of things does NSRC actually house? So most of it is classified. So I'll start with that. Okay. But yes, the, the NSRC's collections total over 15 million materials. And this really runs the gamut in terms of media. As I mentioned earlier, documents, photos, footage, audio, microfilm, microfiche, the list goes on and on. And we curate these materials because they have relevance today, relevance to our national security mission today. In the absence of testing and in support of stockpile stewardship, the short answer is that's what these materials are used for. They help today's scientific researchers, our engineers, physicists with their national security mission work. So they come to us and and we are their partners. And we are, all, we are all working toward that goal of national security. And since the release of the film, what kind of attention or feedback have you all received at LANL or in Los Alamos? I know you said you anticipated a spike in tourism. Yes. I mean, the attention, it's overwhelming, right, Alan? It's overwhelming. We, we've been busy this summer. <laughs> you know, we've, uh, I, I would say in terms of Los Alamos itself, there have been events all summer in town. There have been more visits to the, uh, the town as a whole and to the museums that are there. There are two museums in town, one run by the Historical Society. And of course, there's the Bradbury Science Museum named after Oppenheimer's successor. That's the Laboratories Museum, free and open to the public. So we've seen that. We've seen a lot more requests for things like this. You know, every uh, every year there might be a couple of interview requests, something like that. This year there have been a couple per week almost, it seems like. So there's been a lot of fun things like this, documentaries. There has been a lot of attention. And, of course, our most common question even before the test was something along the lines of, I'd like to know what my grandma did at Los Alamos during the war. We used to get you know, a couple of those a month. Now we're getting a couple of those a week. And so, you know, people are going out, seeing the film, they're curious about their family history, different things like that. I guess another thing as a historian, I'm really excited that people are talking about these issues again. You know, the end of the Cold War was a long time ago. People don't really think about deterrence and nuclear weapons. 
and what the best options are for our country and for the world. You know, with the movie and, of course, with things going on in Eastern Europe and Ukraine right now, people are thinking about these things. And regardless of where people stand on these issues, I think it's good to have that conversation again, because whether it's nuclear power or nuclear deterrence, you know, this technology, I think, is going to be with us, just like Oppenheimer, as Dave said earlier, forever. And so it's good to have that back in the conversation. I think it's healthy to be, uh, to be interested in that. So there's all kinds of interests. I was just going to say my conversation, the historical society folks, is that they're seeing an increase this summer. But what they're really anticipating is next summer and, you know, five years from now, where it's really going to start to spike the interest in the tourism. They're expecting a, a lot of visitors up there. You know, this attention from Nolan's Oppenheimer film has really put Los Alamos and, of course, Oppenheimer in the spotlight again. And that's that's an opportunity for us. This is an incredible opportunity for Los Alamos to remind people of, of our story and our tie to Oppenheimer. They'll ask us all the time as, as we've been talking about our, our documentary that we made in the NSRC. Well, why did you make this documentary? And the short answer is, his story is our story to tell. And so I think this has been an amazing opportunity that, that we're happy to seize upon. A forward-looking question. We've obviously talked to you all a lot about the history at Los Alamos, but if you're thinking about today and bringing us up to speed today, obviously the mission continues there. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning of the episode, but what kinds of things are scientists focused on at Lennel now that maybe from each one of your perspectives that you can share with us? I'll just do a just do a big general sort of you know I'm in the media production and I take photos and I take uh, film and put projects together and for me it's just amazing at all the different things that are happening up there and and Alan talked about that and it's not just weapons it's energy and all kinds of crazy things that these scientists are doing up there to really better our lives, you know, and I guess I'll just, I'll pass it on. It, it just, the number of stories that I do, it, it just runs the whole gamut of science. And, and Alan definitely uh, talked about this at the beginning of, of the hour. You know, national security goes beyond weapons and Los Alamos National Laboratory tackles numerous threats related to national security, be it climate change, disease outbreaks, cyber threats, and more. And so I think looking forward to answer your question, Chris, that's that's where we're headed. It started with the Manhattan Project and these wartime conditions, this wartime urgency to, to end the most horrific global conflict in our history. And we're still doing this incredible science with solving problems like Dave said, to improve lives, to make the world a better place, be it through climate change, national security, disease outbreak, or otherwise. Earlier, I talked about Sandia. Sandia started out, you know, this is a shared story with Sandia, too, uh, having it with their start as part of Los Alamos during the war as one of our wartime divisions. You know, there's multiple national laboratories in our state, and these are places where, you know, people can come in and literally change the world. Oppenheimer changed the world. And considering the different tools that we have at our disposal at these laboratories, some of the world's most powerful computers, the world's most powerful diagnostic or x-ray machine at Los Alamos at Livermore, they have the world's most powerful laser, 
you can do things at these facilities that simply cannot be done anywhere else. And I think for very important reasons. And so, you know, we really want to hopefully inspire interest in people in Los Angeles or in New Mexico, young people who are interested in STEM, maybe young students who haven't given it uh, much thought before. We want them to think about how they can change the world in, in a variety of ways at the national laboratories. I, I think that the system, the national laboratory system, which is an offshoot of those Manhattan Project days, this is a great national asset, but it's not a great national asset without great people. And uh, so, again, I, I, I think that's a part of Oppenheimer's legacy as well. I, I'm excited as a historian because I don't know how the laboratories are going to make history next. It's an exciting thing to contemplate. We're still making a lot of history, so I'll never run out of it to interpret. Yeah. But but anyway, maybe that's a good way to uh, to wrap up that question. Yeah. And I'm sure we could talk to you guys for hours, but you know, for now, is there anything that we didn't ask you about specifically that you feel like is important to share with the public about Los Alamos or, or what goes on there? I'll just jump in in terms of the documentary. One of the toughest parts was, you know, we interviewed, I don't know, 10 or 15 subject matter experts. We spent an hour with each of them and I had to come up with the story and, and cut the story as we all agreed to. So there's a lot of stuff I left on the floor. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, lot of really interesting things that didn't make it into our docuseries. And there again, I think, I think his story will continue. You know, we're still here. And of course, in New Mexico, that's no secret. But I've, I think a lot of people in the country don't realize that, yes, Oppenheimer's laboratory is still around. It's different than it has been or was during World War II. You know, we've got 80 years of history now, and we're still adding on to it. There's, uh, there's that. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking for part two of the movie, maybe. Maybe Christopher Nolan can talk about some other things. Because in those years and in those decades that followed, Los Alamos created technologies that impact all of our lives. And there's a lot of stories there uh, to be told. Thanks again to Alan Carr, Bryce Steves, and Dave Tietmeyer from Los Alamos for taking the time to talk with us today about all the work that goes on in Los Alamos National Laboratory today. We will also post a link to that documentary that we discussed in our show notes and on our website. So feel free to check it out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Also the movie as well, which again, I have not seen yet, but it's always um, a good reminder that sometimes you forget living here that all of this really important and monumental work happened right here in New Mexico. For a while, nobody had any idea of what was happening here. It's another one of those kind of uh, legendary tales from the state of New Mexico. And if you have a legendary tale that you would like us to share or somebody you'd like to hear from on the podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhart at KRQE.com via email and GBurkNM on social media. And I'm Chris McKee at KRQE.com and at Chris McKee TV. Thanks for listening. <laughs>